According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Woo! <laughs> We're here. Oh, me of little faith. Um, I was starting to wonder. It's a pulpit this morning. We have no, no speakers yet, so I'll just project. But I think the room was designed for acoustically. The room was, uh, the walls were angled and the ceiling was sloped and everything was designed to be pretty clear. So uh, we'll just see how it goes. Uh, This will not always be the screen over here. This is only for the temporary basis of this morning. If I tried to shine it behind me sitting on that cart right there, it would just blind me for the whole hour. We don't want to do that. So uh, hopefully between now and Sunday, we will get this thing posted in the ceiling and then it'll just go over my head like pretty much everything else around here. It's all over my head. I can't figure anything out. Well, tell you what, let's uh, let's turn to Matthew chapter twenty. And uh, let's just start with some prayer and thank him for being so awesome. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and the privilege and blessing that we have to assemble together. And Father, for the unbelievable, indescribable grace that you've supplied and poured out upon us. Father, we're, we're thankful for your grace provision. We're thankful for this new facility. Uh, it is a true privilege and blessing, Father. And, and I do pray for diligence and pray for seriousness and that uh, the pastor and the deacons and the members and every believer would recognize that to whom much is given shall much be required. And, Father, you have uh, provided beyond anything we could ask or think. So here, Father, in our uh, in our first teaching session in the new facility, we just want to worship you and serve you and love you and thank you for all that you do and all that you continue to do. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right. Benefit of being here this morning is you uh, are the select few that can claim to have attended every single service in the history of this building. So, no pressure or anything. But if you miss tonight, then you drop out of that select list. So it's a he will dwindle <laughs> as far as that goes. Well, join me in Matthew chapter 20. We are in the um, Life of Christ series, and we're moving on to a new episode today, episode 38 in the last Judean and Prean ministry. Uh, it's going to be followed by 39, 40, 41, and 42, uh, the final episodes in the last Judean and Prean ministry. So we have uh, we, little Zacchaeus up in the tree. That's uh, our next episode, interview with Zacchaeus. Then the parable of the Minas. Uh, he returns to the home of Mary and Martha. And then the plot to kill Lazarus. It was just unacceptable that he didn't stay dead. So they, uh, they create this plot to try to kill him again and get him dead a second time and that'll be our final uh, episode in the uh, last judean and Prean ministry then we reach palm sunday or better uh, commonly known as palm sunday uh, as i teach it palm monday and uh, we'll address the final passion week and the uh, the circumstances there all right matthew chapter 20 verses 29 through 34 this is the shortest of the accounts it has a parallel in Mark 10, verses 46 through 52. It's a verse or two longer. And then the longest of the accounts comes in Luke 18, verses 35 through 43. So let's pick up. There are actually different details in each of the different accounts. So um, we'll read. I guess we'll read them from shortest to longest. How about that? Matthew 20. Uh, it says, As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Two blind men sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by, cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. The crowd sternly told them to be quiet, but they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus stopped and called them and said, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, we want our eyes open. Moved with compassion, Jesus touched their eyes, and immediately they regained their sight and followed him. All right, so there you have it, five or six short verses, and uh, no names mentioned, and uh, really sketchy on the details. So turning over now to Mark 10. A little bit longer version. 
Luke's is the longest, but uh, Luke also fails to give the name, just like Matthew failed to give the name. Mark will give us the name of Bartimaeus. Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. Then uh, they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd, a blind beggar named Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, was sitting by the road. When he heard that Jesus, the Nazarene, when it, that it was Jesus, the Nazarene, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man, saying to him, take courage, stand up. He is calling for you. Uh, throwing aside his cloak, he jumped up and came to Jesus. And that's a wonderful detail that's not in Matthew, but it's right here. Throwing aside his cloak. We'll have some comment on that in the outline. And answering him, Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabboni, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him on the road. All right, then our final gospel record, the gospel of Luke. All three of the synoptic accounts giving this, uh, this story. Luke 18, verses 35 to 43. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. And he called out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him. What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. And Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. And, and when, they all, when all the people saw it, they began giving praise to God. All right, here are the three accounts. Now, have you noticed some uh, discrepancies? Notice some divergence of record. Let's call it that. There are no discrepancies. The Bible never lies. And so uh, we don't want to fall into the trap that, well, one must be true, one must be false. All right? Because if you admit that, and if you uh, propose that there is a single passage of the Bible that's wrong, you've just stepped off a very dangerous cliff. All right? What do we have? We have one blind man, or two, begging as Jesus was approaching and or leaving Jericho. And we'll intersperse the scriptures in the account here to, uh, to highlight the distinctions in the record. One blind man, according to Mark and Luke, or two, according to Matthew. Begging, again, that's the Mark and Luke record. Matthew makes no reference to the begging. As Jesus was approaching, Luke says this took place while Jesus was approaching. But in the Matthew and Mark record, he was leaving Jericho. And so this, uh, these then become details that we want to reconcile and we want to harmonize. The, uh, the issue in a harmony of the gospel is to blend the accounts together whereby every record is true in and of itself and every record is consistent with the other records and the details of what they are revealing. Uh, so one blind man or two. And I find this interesting. We're going to spell out for you how I think I'm going to spell this out. This is uh, a similar issue in what happened back when um, the Lord cast out a demon out of Legion. In fact, there we go. Let me just leave that for point seven. Uh, so when one author says there's one blind man, another author says there's two blind men, is that a discrepancy? Is that a problem? Is that a conflict? Is it irreconcilable? Okay. It's not irreconcilable if, in fact, uh, we have a statement, a blind man, and we don't have the definitive uh, limitation where it says one and only one blind man existed in that town. All right. The author's choosing to highlight the more noteworthy. In this case, Bartimaeus became noteworthy after the event, was known to the early church after the event. Uh, and so it's not, uh, it's not in any way false or in any way misleading to emphasize the one that has some 
noteworthiness to him and to not make reference to a buddy that happened to tag along. Similar thing happened with the lepers. A similar thing has happened with uh, demoniacs, where in Matthew's account there have been two. Mark and Luke simply recorded the one. For example, Legion is the one that we know by name. Well, who was his demoniac buddy that was also there with him? Scripture record doesn't tell us. But we don't find the distinction between two and one as being a contrast. The one actually that takes more work to deal with is the idea, well, was he approaching Jericho or was he leaving Jericho? That does appear to be a mutually exclusive uh, issue whereby they cannot both be true. If that's all we had is in the record of Luke is that he was approaching where the miracle took place. I think Luke tells us more than that. And, uh, and we'll spell that out too as we go take you through step by step through the detail. Um, if you read the commentaries on this, there's a lot of other explanations and things. I think they make it harder on themselves than they ought to. <laughs> there are easier explanations to reconcile the coming or leaving question. And um, some have gone so far as to try to posit the two different Jerichos, for example. The ancient Jericho that was in ruins and the rebuilt Jericho uh, a little distance away that, that Herod was rebuilding. It was still in the progress of uh, being rebuilt, actually, at this time. And so they've speculated that it was in between the two Jerichos, that he was leaving the one, the older ruined, destroyed one, and he was approaching the new one. And so it was kind of, it, it, it's kind of a flaky explanation. There's really no reason for it. And, and here we'll, we'll show you why. Uh, point two, do not confuse this episode with uh, an earlier one. There was a similar story that involved two blind men. They called him son of David and he healed them. Uh, there are differences between that account and this account. Uh, both of them are recorded by Matthew and a uh, personal eyewitness to both events. And uh, so given that the same gospel records both activities, we accept them as being separate activities. Um, but anyway, I wanted to give this to you as point two in the outline. This episode is not to be confused with an earlier episode. They're two distinct miracles. Uh, Galilean ministry, episode 31, if you have your notes from back in the Galilean ministry. So it was much earlier in the, the life of Christ chronology. It was, um, it was more associated with Capernaum was associated with his cro- uh, back and forth crossing of the Sea of Galilee and, uh, and was really and, and related to the healing of Jairus's daughter uh, very quickly after that episode that this episode uh, Galilee ministry 31 took place. So keep them separate and, uh, and you'll do better with it. The only people that try to blend them are the unbelievers and the skeptics anyway that don't think God wrote the Bible and they try to create all these source hypotheses for how the Bible came to be and how do they accumulate all these legends and all these written forms. And uh, they've got a, a really a flawed bibliology that, that hurts their understanding of every passage they look at. Now, here's where we start to see some wonderful parallelisms. And, I, and I'm, I'm, this episode, I think, is critical. When have we seen Jericho? In, 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 from, the, from the manger till now, okay? Or if you want to take it beyond now, take it to the cross and the resurrection and the ascension. From everything from the manger to the ascension, have we seen Jericho at all? In this Life of Christ series, we have not. Uh, Jesus has not visited Jericho uh, on, on the record as far as it goes. This is his first approach. But understand also, Jericho in the Old Testament was the first approach. It was the first point of contact for Joshua's military invasion. When they were finally given permission to end their wilderness wanderings and to actually go into the land to accomplish what the Father was providing, Jericho was the point of entry. And I'll show you on a map here how it was positioned right there at the north end of the, of the Dead Sea and, and uh, at a spot nearby uh, a ford in the River Jordan, although they didn't need the ford in Joshua's day. The miracle part of the River Jordan, and they walked through on, on dry ground. Today there's a bridge. <laughs> there's a bridge and a border crossing between Israel and, and, uh, and Jordan at that point across the river. But Jericho was the first point of contact for Joshua's military invasion of Canaan. If you want to go back to... Joshua chapter 2 and Joshua chapter 6. Okay. It now becomes the first point of contact for Jesus. And th- why this is such a parallel is because Jesus is Joshua. Okay. Understand that. Joshua is the Hebrew name. Jesus is the Greek name. But it's the same name. Understand that. Jesus is Joshua. In, in later um, Hebrew, the Yahashua that was the, uh, the longer form uh, was shortened to Yeshua. And even today, Messianic Jews will refer to Yeshua. Uh, when they talk about Jesus of Nazareth, they call him Yeshua. And, uh, but it's the same name. 
And, and I find the imagery here wonderful. And the episode here is, is extraordinary because um, Joshua came to conquer. And Jesus does not come to conquer. He comes humbly riding on a colt. And even that was spoken of by the prophet Zechariah. Uh, when Joshua reached Jericho, there was a deliverance that took place. Rahab was delivered and spared. And because of Rahab's faith then, her whole family, her whole household was spared. Here, Jesus comes into Jericho and Bartimaeus is going to be healed. And I think as a result of Bartimaeus' faith, he has a buddy. I call this blind Bartimaeus' begging buddy. And uh, I suspect his name was Bob. All right, my... For 15 years, I've searched for a Bob in all the Bible, and it took, I could never find Bob on Woodrow. All right, but I come to Cross Park Drive, and we, uh, we've now found our first Bob in the Bible. Uh, but Bartimaeus and his faith, he is delivered from his blindness. He becomes a disciple, becomes a follower of Christ, and his buddy, his begging buddy, um, has a deliverance here as well. Um, we'll highlight some other distinctions as well. Joshua to Jesus and the and the uh, the approach. When you think of the wilderness wanderings, until such time as in the Father's wisdom they were brought in to accomplish His purpose. Think about Jesus and the Galilean ministry and the Perean ministry and and uh, and now He has His time. It's the Father's purpose. He's going to come to Jerusalem. He's going to accomplish what the Father has designed. So there's um, some neat parallelism from the Old Testament to the New Testament. With respect to this. Point four. Some of the geography on Jericho. This route was dangerous. Remember the story? This was not a safe road. This route was dangerous for lone travelers. This is the setting for the parable of the Good Samaritan. And we did this. I I forgot to put the episode on there. So I'll try to hunt that down this week and have it in the notes for next week. But Luke chapter 10 has the uh, parable of the Good Samaritan. Luke chapter 10 verse 30 is a specific verse that starts off the story and tells you how dangerous this road was. And a lone traveler working on this road coming up the hill here or going down, I forget which way he was going, from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he was waylaid by the robbers. For this journey, the Lord is accompanied by a large company. And that is the normal practice in dangerous territory. If there is violence that's uh, to be anticipated, then you go in a group. You go in a large party, a large well-armed party, or as armed as the Roman government will let you. All right. And so for this journey, the Lord is accompanied by a large company. And we've seen the terms already. Well, we've read through every account. But let me just give them to you here in the subpoints. And when you start to glean the details, you start to say, wait a minute. There was a larger company that was that was happening here. And, and so the idea of entering into Jericho and leaving Jericho does not appear to be as contradictory as it did at first glance. Um, and you'll see what I'm talking about here. A lot of this maybe just bores you to tears, but I like it. Uh, because in my background, in uh, much of what I did as an MP in the, in the uh, military, uh, one of the primary activities that military police are used for is, is for um, uh, combat traffic control, used for convoy escorts, used for um, keeping a long line of 20 trucks, 30 trucks, 50 trucks, uh, all in the same route, all in the same, not missing the, you know, not making the wrong turn and, and having them directed where they need to go. And if, uh, if there's a, an attack, keeping them all from being wiped out, you know, how do you respond to an ambush when you have a long convoy of 20 vehicles? All right. Which, of course, depends on where the ambush hits. Is it the lead vehicle that's hit? Is it the back vehicle that's hit? Is it in the middle? And, and how do you respond in each of those three scenarios? And all kinds of stuff. Um, what happens when you get a Red Cross convoy into Kuwait City and you find out that um, that it's not as clear as it was supposed to be, see, uh, that there's still combat going on there and a tank battle is taking place and they actually lied to you, telling you that, oh, no, the tank battle's over, uh, bring the Red Cross shipments in. So we, okay, and we, uh, we brought the Red Cross shipments in, see, only to find out that the, uh, the Marine Corps commander who, uh, you know, I, I don't know what he was trying to do, maybe make a good impression with his commanders or maybe try to, try to minimize the time it took to, to destroy the Iraqi tanks there. He kind of cheated a little bit on the, he figured, you know, this will be done in about 30 minutes, so I'll go ahead and tell him it's done now. So he called it in as being complete. And then as soon as he calls it in as being complete, they discovered a bunch more tanks, and uh, the battle ended up taking, you know, a couple more hours. And, uh, and so, yeah, we showed up with the Red Cross uh, civilian semi-trucks 
And uh, we show up with a convoy of Red Cross uh, civilians, and, and uh, it was not good. <laughs> In the middle of a tank fight between American and Iraqi tanks. And so the idea of... Um, of uh, convoy operations, the idea of traveling in a large group, the idea, and what happens is, is you have a lead party, and then you have the main party, and then you have the rear guard, you have the tail party. And all of that is mentioned in these three gospel accounts. And you'll see that here in just a moment. Um, the reference in Luke was to those who led the way. Those who led the way. Uh, let me get back to Luke 18, and you'll spot this. Because Luke is the one gospel record that talks about him uh, that as he was approaching, as he was approaching, and so some Bible haters and God haters and skeptics and stuff will point at that and say, see, right there, contradiction. The Bible's not true. You can't trust it. Well, slow down. You can trust it. Look closer. So, yes, he was approaching. But it was as he was approaching that, uh, and a blind man was sitting by the road begging, he heard a crowd going by and he began to inquire what this was. So, the crowd has just started to arrive. The advanced party has just started to arrive. You even have a specific reference in verse 39 to those who led the way. Okay? Those who led the way. So this must be, uh, who is it? The, is it the rangers lead the way? Anyway. Um, <laughs> those who led the way. This is the advanced party. This is the lead team. And this was common. Even when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to send a couple of disciples on ahead, and they're going to meet a man there at the gate that has the colt ready to go, and he's going to have the upper room prepared. You always send the lead team in for, uh, for logistics and getting things set up. And so um, this man, he starts yelling <laughs> and when they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, meaning he's, he's approaching the town, he's going to be here shortly. Um, he starts calling out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He's just shouting. And how many times do you think he shouted this? Think he just shouted it once? No, he's a blind guy. He doesn't know when Jesus is there. All he knows is what he's heard, what he's been told by the advance party, by those who lead the way, that he is coming. He's passing through. And for how many years has he been waiting for Jesus to come to Nazareth? I mean, to come to Jericho. All right. I, I expect these blind guys in Jericho don't travel a lot. And they probably don't get up to Galilee. They probably don't get to Nazareth. They probably they have heard stories. Maybe there were other previously blind guys who had testified to the miracle that was done on their behalf. We don't know. But he had full awareness of who Jesus the Nazarene was. He knew immediately that Jesus the Nazarene was the heir to the throne of David. And starts calling him son of David. And starts calling with positive volition to be healed. And there's not a doubt in his mind that the healing can take place and that it's going to take place. So, again, I, I would just bring your attention to those who led the way. And those who led the way came with a leading crowd because uh, they are right here in association with the large crowd in verse 36. Hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. So he starts yelling, he starts yelling, Jesus, have mercy, Jesus, have mercy, son of David, have mercy, have mercy on me. And when's he going to stop? Well, see, he's not going to know. He has no way to see the, the change in the crowds, he has no way to see Jesus and would even recognize Jesus anyway if he saw him. So he's just going to keep yelling and keep yelling and keep yelling until the whole train's gone by or until he gets his answer. And uh, I think that what we're looking at right here is a, a neat metaphor or a, a, a pattern for how we pray and how we're told to pray without ceasing and how we're told we saw on Sunday how you, you who remind the Lord... Take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest until provision is made and the answer is, is unfolded. So he's not going to shut up. They tell him to shut up, and does he shut up? No. Um, he just calls out all the more. He keeps crying out. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, all the more. Every time they said, will you shut up? He got louder. <laughs> Every time they said, would you stop calling for him? He just kept calling even louder. And uh, I think it's brilliant. I think it's, it's, it's a testimony of faith that, um, you know, he understands as long as, as long as he hasn't passed by yet, then he's going to keep yelling out. All right, so there's those who led the way. There's also his disciples and a large crowd with him. And I think in the Mark record, we have the proximity of this large crowd. So now we have... Uh, this is our second crowd. 
There was a leading crowd and now the large crowd in Mark 10:46, and they are actually with him. So this is not the advance party or the trailing party. This is the party right here with, uh, with the commander's Humvee. Mark chapter 10 and verse 46. I either did in my career either the lead party or the trail vehicle, <laughs> picking up the stragglers. Uh, never was in the center of any convoy or certainly never with a commander. Um, Mark chapter 10 and verse 46. They came to Jericho. So here Mark actually records both coming and leaving. They came to Jericho and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a large crowd. So there's the proximity traveling with the Lord, not ahead of him, but with him. And uh, the blind beggar named Bartimaeus starts calling out. And then the trail group, I believe we see here in Matthew, the large crowd followed after in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 29. As they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. And so I think in all three of these gospel accounts, we got the group that led the way, we got the group that was with them, and we have the group the crowd that was after him. And, and the second and third groups are both called megas. They're both called large. The lead party may not have been quite as large, but it was still a crowd nonetheless. How many people do you need to make a crowd? Yeah, I don't know. I think we got a crowd here today, right? So, I mean, just a few, more than a few. It's not a small crowd. It's a crowd. All right, point five. The blind men heard of his coming before he arrived. They heard he was coming. And there's a difference between what they were told and what they cried out. They were told Jesus or Jesus the Nazarene or Jesus of Nazareth. That's what they were told. In the Matthew record, it's, G it's just simply Jesus. And, and Jesus was a common name, by the way. There was Jesus called Justice, Jesus called Barsabbas. There was several Jesuses. I mean, literally, they were Joshua's. And given the, the Greek translation, they became Jesus. Um, but when you nail it down to Jesus of Nazareth, or just simply Jesus, I mean, if, if he has gained the reputation he's gained, you don't need more of a description than that, do you? <laughs> you know, oh, Jesus of Nazareth, the carpenter's son, who travels with 12 disciples, who performs many signs and many miracles. That all goes without saying. That all goes without saying when you have that kind of notoriety. It'd be like, uh, you know, Elvis has left the building, right? You know, we're not, well, which Elvis are you talking about? Okay, there might be other Elvis is in the world, but there's only one, there will ever only be one Elvis, okay? So Jesus is coming, and that's all you need to know. You don't need, oh, is that Jesus Barsabbas? Is that Jesus, uh, <laughs> what's Jesus, Okay. Jesus is coming. Now, this is what they're told. How they respond, though, is interesting because they immediately start hailing him as the son of David. They immediately start hailing him as the heir to the throne of David. Of course, many Judeans were of Davidic lineage. Many Judeans, I mean, David had countless, I mean, how many wives and children did he have? He had dozens. But as far as the legal heir, the right to the title, the son of David, there's only one legitimate descent who's entitled to that throne, and that's Jesus. And so I think they, uh, they saw more clearly than most of the other people that actually could see. They actually were able to see. I didn't show you the spiffy little map, did I? That's terrible. I'll back up a little bit. Um, but these blind men saw more clearly than most others. They rightly identified the Nazarene as the rightful king. We also have in this passage and elsewhere, we have, I think, undeniable evidence that Nazarene means an inhabitant of Nazareth. That Nazarene refers to his hometown. Nazarene pinpoints him as a Galilean. Nazarene is not Nazarite. Okay? In, in Leviticus, uh, in Numbers, you got the Nazarite vow in the Old Testament. He had the, the very rigid um, spiritual service of the Nazarite vow. That could touch no alcohol, that could touch no corpse, that could, uh, was under, and, and usually it was a very finite time. 
John the Baptist had a life lifelong Nazarite vow. Couldn't cut your hair. Um, and in for whatever reason, I, and I think the medieval church promoted it. I can't find the church fathers didn't promote it. But I think in medieval Rome, it kind of became understood that Jesus was a Nazarite. That Jesus uh, was under the strictest of all the, the, the vows, where he didn't consume alcohol and he didn't touch a corpse, which we have the Bible that says he did. He, you know, he raised people from the dead and, and that he didn't drink wine. And the Bible says he did. Um, and things like that. And, and so that he never cut his hair. And so we get the Renaissance paintings of this effeminate, long-haired, kind of hippie-looking Jesus, Right. And, and what it comes down to is this mythology or this misrendering of, of a Nazarite and a Nazarene. Okay? And here, when you very clearly have the Mark account that says he's the uh, Nazarene, and then it's spelled out in Luke that he's of the village of Nazareth, then, then it's conclusive. And you don't have to worry about any of the rest. Because if he was a Nazarite, he was a terrible Nazarite. I mean, he was crummy. Like I say, he was touching dead bodies. He was drinking alcohol, um, violating who knows whatever other kind of of uh, laws he was ruling. I think as a, in, in the Davidic tribes, the Davidic clans all tended to be military oriented, and all tended to be very short-haired, clean-cut, disciplined type of uh, of clans within the Jewish people. So if you have your if you have your long-haired portrait of the house somewhere, don't feel like you have to burn it or throw it out or be embarrassed if the pastor comes over and sees it. I'm just telling you, it's, uh, it's the romanticism of, of the Renaissance painters. All right. Where did I put the... Uh, back up. There we go. There we go. And what's the point in making it if you don't show it? Although it might be too light to see. Um, Mediterranean Sea is out here, and then the River Jordan flows down here into the Dead Sea. And just like where Israel crossed, this is where Jesus is going to cross, right down here to Jericho. And, uh, and and begin his journey up through this dangerous mountain road up to uh, past Bethany, past the Mount of Olives, into Jerusalem. He'll actually stop at Bethany because that's where Mary and Martha live, as well as the formerly dead Lazarus. So he'll stop there. Uh, before the um, entrance on Palm Monday, that gives you an idea on the on the geography here. There we go. These blind men saw more clearly than most others. They rightly identified the Nazarene as their rightful king. The idea. Ever since it was first given in the in uh, the Davidic covenant, that a son shall rule on his throne forever, and the promise was made, and those who knew the scriptures and those who believed in the faithfulness of God's promises never stopped believing that. They never stopped believing that, even when current events seemed to um, cause others to get dubious or get skeptical. Okay, do you ever read a newspaper and wonder, well, gee, maybe. Maybe Pastor Bob's eschatology is wrong. Maybe this is not going to happen here. Maybe. Stop. Wait a minute. Okay. You've made two fatal mistakes. First of all, reading a newspaper. But then secondly, <laughs> saying maybe Pastor Bob's wrong here. It's not Pastor Bob. It's what does the Word of God say? What does the Scripture say? All right. And what they ended up doing in the ancient world, they ended up abandoning the idea of the Davidic covenant. Because the, the Davidic throne had been empty since Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem in 586 B.C. And they stayed in captivity for 70 years. They came back. But even when they came back under Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel should have sat on the throne, but didn't. God never commanded him to. I believe God commanded him not to. Zerubbabel was the son of David, the heir, the rightful king. But he was also a son of Jeconiah, and Jeconiah had been cursed. And so there was a conundrum there. Jeconiah had been cursed. No descendant of Jeconiah can sit on this throne. And yet, a son of David has to sit on the throne. And so there's a dilemma there that, that Zerubbabel couldn't reconcile, so Zerubbabel doesn't take the throne. And Zerubbabel's son doesn't take the throne. And his son, and his son, and his son, and his son. No one is eligible to take the throne because although they are the heir of David and the son of David, they're also the son of Jeconiah, and they're under that curse. See? And it's not until the virgin birth 
whereby Jesus is the legal heir of David, but not literally the son of of Jeconiah. That he's freed from that curse of Jeconiah, but still the eternal son of David with the right to take that throne. It's a glorious thing. And we can, we can understand it now with hindsight, but can you imagine a believer in the first century without knowing about the virgin birth until Isaiah says a virgin shall conceive and bear a son? They then might start to have a clue as to how this is going to happen. But most of the Jewish people in the, in the Maccabean era, in the Greek era, the Maccabean era, they started to kind of abandon the Davidic covenant. They started to abandon a lot of the literal approach to scriptures because they couldn't reconcile it with current events. And... Um, they, they fought a war for independence and they, they defeat the Greeks and they set up their own throne and they put a priest on the throne. They put a priest on the throne. Maccabeus was, was a Levite. And, uh, you know, you talk about Matthias and his sons, you know, Judas and, and, and the, the, there were five, I think, brothers and then their sons, um, including a guy named Alexander. I mean, he's got this pagan Greek name. All right. And they viewed this as a great, glorious thing. We overthrew the Greeks. We have our independence. We cleansed the temple and we invented Hanukkah. Okay? And they're viewing this as a golden era for Jewish people. And faithful Bible students said, oh, no, 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 this is bad. This is wrong. Because the throne belongs to Judah. The scepter belongs to Judah. The throne belongs to David. And... And Daniel gave us the outline from Babylon to Persia to Greece to Rome. There's, a, there's an empire of iron on the way. We can't just throw off the empire of, of bronze and say, hey, we're here. And these faithful Bible students, you know who I'm talking about? They became the Pharisees. These faithful Bible students who believed God's promises, who believed the Davidic covenant, who believed what God had promised God would bring about. It's really, it's fascinating history. If you ever want to read through uh, the, the first Maccabees, I recommend it. Read, read Josephus and his uh, Antiquities of the Jews. The good history gives you the information in between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And you find out, if you limit yourself to just the Gospels, I, I'm sad. I'm sorry for you. If you limit yourself to just the Gospels, then all you have is what the Pharisees turned into. You have the Pharisees by the first century who are just legalists. And, and carnal and demonic and wicked, and they put Jesus to death. They're his, they're, they're his greatest adversaries. Why? Because they have the, the firmest grip on the Scriptures. I don't find that to be an accident. So read some Josephus. Read some, because um, he was a Pharisee. Read some um, uh, Maccabees, and you get the history in between the Testaments, and you'll have an appreciation for people that said, this priest king is not right. This Hasmonean dynasty is wrong. The throne belongs to David. All right. Well, now we've got um, these blind men who see more clearly because they're told that Jesus of Nazareth is coming and they immediately start crying out, Son of David, Son of David, hailing him as their king. So where do they learn that? Where do they learn that? Where do they learn that the Messiah was indeed amongst their people in this day and age. They, they had a faith that this was true. They knew this was true. We don't have any record that he'd been in, in Jericho prior to this. But as I said, maybe it was previously other, other blind folks, the man born blind or whoever. Maybe a formerly blind person had been healed and came to Jericho and shared the good news. That was pretty common for folks who were healed. They start glorifying God and testifying and traveling all around and saying, look what God did for me. And telling people about Jesus of Nazareth. He is the Christ. He is the Christ. Alright, point seven. Just as Legion dominated the narrative for Mark and Luke. Yeah, Matthew never names Legion. Bartimaeus is particularly highlighted in Mark and Luke for this narrative. There's a lot of parallels. And not the stories are unrelated. But the parallels are good to help us to identify the author's writing style. To the fact that, in, like in the, in the case of Legion, there were two demoniacs that were healed. And Mark's, Matthew's the only gospel that tells us that. Matthew's the only author that says, oh, by the way, there were two demoniacs in the cemetery that day. And gives us the record. And doesn't bother telling us about the, uh, uh, the name of the one that, that Mark and Luke found so important. All right. And uh, remember, Matthew was writing primarily a Jewish gospel to Jewish people. And um, 
in a, in a Jewish realm, what becomes important? Uh, how about by two or three witnesses, all things shall be confirmed? It becomes significant if, in fact, there are two people healed of a demon or two people that have their blindness cured or two people that can testify, not just a single a single uh, person testifying to what he experienced. When you have two cooperating under law, it was valid testimony. And I think Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience with a stress on the, on the Jewish king, uh, highlights that. doesn't show up so well in Mark or Luke. Anyway, that's back in Galilee Ministry, episode 29. If uh, you want to review your notes on that, Matthew chapter 8, verses 28 through 34. Short little, uh, what is that, 28, 29, 37 verses. Uh, and, and no mention of, of legion by name, but two demoniacs, and Jesus healed them. Uh, Mark chapter 5, look at that, 20 verses. 20 verses in Mark chapter 5. And then Luke chapter 8, verses 26 through 39. Again, much longer than the Matthew record, and only one demoniac instead of two, and mentioning him by name. So we have parallels here. And these will help us. Again, they're, they're facets that, that um, we appreciate. The skeptics try to use them as a thing against the validity of the Bible, but we appreciate it, and I think it's actually a mark towards the validity of the Bible. Now, these gospel writers didn't... Uh, they weren't in cahoots. They weren't sitting down together, uh, working on their homework together, and trying to copy off of each other, and trying to turn in their assignments that were suspiciously identical. Okay? I mean, if we had suspiciously identical gospel records, I think that the, the Bible skeptics and the God-haters, they'd probably attack that and say, oh, well, they're so, they're clones, they're practically identical. They Obviously, they copied off of each other, and they can't be true. So, you're not going to win. You know, as far as the people that don't want to believe the Bible, they don't because they don't want to. So, you know, where's the debater of this age? In a lot of cases, I, um, you know, I'm not here to debate. If, if, you're, if you're hungry for truth, you want to be fed. If you, uh, if you love the Lord that saved you and you trust what he's testified in his word, then come to Bible class and we'll be blessed. But if you don't love God anyway and you think his word's a pack of lies, then you're probably wasting your time. What are you doing here? And I find that to be a fruitful attitude. All right, point eight then. Who is this Bartimaeus guy anyway? Call him Bart. Barty. I don't know. Bartimaeus. And, and if Bartimaeus is the name of one guy, then who's the other guy? Like I said, I think his name is Bob. I think we finally found the first Bob in all of Scripture. <laughs> Bartimaeus. Well, first of all, Bartimaeus... What kind of name is Bartimaeus? It's uh, it's a hybrid, really. It's a, it's it's an Aramaic, possibly an Aramaic name, but it's more likely to be an Aramaic Greek hybrid, and that's um, that becomes interesting too when that happens. Uh, but the bar in front of Timaeus, bar means son. It's the Aramaic, uh, you know, in Hebrew in Hebrew it's ben or bean for son of. In uh, Aramaic, it's Bar. So you've got Barnabas, right? Travel with Paul. And you've got Barsabbas. And you've got Bar-Jesus. And you've got Bar... How many Bars are there? There's lots of Bars in, uh, you know, the, the prefix name Bar this and Bar that. Um, but then you want to talk about a debate, try reading the literature on, on uh, Tamai <laughs> or Tamaios. Uh, if you take the Aramaic right here, Temai, oh, I don't have my underliner working, uh, but if you take the Temai, T-I-M-A-Y is how you spell that. I didn't transliterate. T-I-M-A-Y from the Aramaic. Um, Temai is our word for defilement. It's our word for unclean. An animal was either clean or unclean, whether you could eat them or not eat them, or sacrifice them or not sacrifice them. Temai is an unclean. Anything to my is unclean. An unclean animal, an unclean offering, an unclean person, an unclean thing. And so to be the son of an unclean is an interesting name. Uh, particularly, uh, it's maybe more interesting for his dad. Because <laughs> his dad's name is Tamai. His dad's name is unclean. And who would name their son unclean? Unless, what were the circumstances of that pregnancy? <laughs> All right. And... Uh, we, we kind of leave ourselves with more questions than answers, I think, in a lot of it. 
the uh, the other solution, and, and and no one really is happy with the idea of of a of a devout Jewish person being named unclean or son of unclean, unless maybe it was a testimony to their um, appreciation for the grace that saved them. Which is the same answer I give for why Caleb was named Caleb. There's only one Caleb in the Bible. And why is he named Caleb? Caleb means dog, and dogs are unclean. And uh, what's the issue with Caleb, the son of Jephunneh? Why does he take the name Caleb? I don't think it was his birth name. I think it was a name he took when he was adopted into the tribe of into the tribe of Judah. Because uh, when you when you start tracking the other records, there's the genealogy in Deuteronomy, there's a genealogy in Chronicles, and there's other things. Caleb's got two different dads. And how do you end up with two different dads? I think he's got a birth dad and he's got an adopted dad. And when he was adopted, he was adopted by Jephunneh into the tribe of Judah. And he becomes a prince of Judah. He becomes one of the spies that goes into the land. But I think prior to that, I think it was a Gentile dog. A Gentile dog adopted into the tribe of Judah. And it's, uh, it's, a, neat, it's a neat thing to consider. But why would, why would uh, Jewish parents, if they love the Lord, name their kid dog? Why would they name their kid unclean or son of unclean? And so because of that, because that's a little bit awkward to try to consider, um, they, there is a speculation that maybe it's not from the Aramaic Temai. Maybe the bar part is the Aramaic part, but Temai actually comes from Timaeus, the Greek name. Maybe it comes from Timaeus, and that's very well attested. And it means much nicer things in Greek than it means in Aramaic. All right? Uh, because Timai in, in Aramaic is unclean, but Timae in Greek means honorable, worthy. Uh, Timothy is honored by God. Timotheos, honored by God. A lot of Timae uh, prefixes in, in uh, combinations with names and things. Plus, there's a very famous Timae or Timaios in, uh, in literature. In, uh, in uh, uh, Plato, one of his dialogues was Timaeus. In fact, uh, very well known. To this day, he's still viewed and studied and, and, and blasphemed and different things. Because it's Timaeus who came up with this mythology of, of the Greek mythology of, of how the universe came into about. There's this Timaeus who invented the the uh, or propagated the belief of the demiurge that was kind of in between gods and men and created the existence and things. So um, maybe uh, maybe that was the origin of the name. We're not entirely certain. There's other accounts of that too, where you have a blend of names, where it'll start. The first half will be uh, will be Hebrew or Aramaic, and then the second half will be Greek. And and so you get a lot of these guys in this uh, in this century that have names like that. The phrase "son of Timaeus." The phrase son of Timaeus. See, Mark is actually, he's in the habit of doing this. Mark's habit is to translate and explain Aramaic terms. This is Mark's habit. And in the early church, particularly among the Jewish community, uh, there was really a rift between the Hellenists and the, uh, and the Aramaic Jews. So much so that in Acts chapter 6, there's actually a, a church split that's on, it's in the, on the verge of happening. Some of the widows are getting neglected. And that's, that's how we get the, our first deacons, actually, because they're, they're brought on board to try to handle things fairly and, uh, and try to mend the fences between the Hellenists and the, and the Aramaic Jewish people. And so in Mark's gospel, it's really kind of interesting. You get the idea that he traveled with Peter, and Peter uh, was the apostle to the Jews. But most of Peter's travels, so far as we understand in Acts, came in, uh, in Greek areas, in the, in the Hellenist areas. And so in writing the gospel record that Mark writes on Peter's behalf, he, he takes great pains in explaining Aramaic terms. Okay? And if you just want a quick sampling on that, you can see it here in Mark chapter 3. How am I doing for time? I like having a clock back there. That's great. I was uncomfortable. like I was a duck out of water on Sunday. I didn't have a clock to look at. It was horrible. Normally I preach to the clock because I don't want to make eye contact with anybody. So I spent 15 years preaching to a clock. And Sunday, Sunday I preached to a, there was a thermostat on the back wall. I kept looking at that thermostat, which was great because it kept me from making eye contact with anybody, but it didn't tell me what time it was. <laughs> Mark chapter 3, um, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to them he gave the name Boanerges. Well, what is that? Which means sons of thunder. So Mark, uh, Mark likes translating, interpreting, and explaining things. Chapter 7 and verse 11. 
If a man says to his father or mother, whatever I have that would help you is korban. Well, that is to say, given to God. Let's explain what the korban uh, gimmick is all about, what the korban purpose was. See. And then down to verse 34. Uh, looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephathah, that is, be opened. Uh, this is one of the, the, the few actual literal verbatim quotes that we have in the Bible. Usually we don't get verbatim quotes. But here we have a verbatim quote, the literal word that Jesus spoke. And it was an Aramaic word. And Mark translates it for his, uh, for his audience. And then uh, chapter 14 and verse 36. The last use of it there. And it's interesting, even though Mark was fond of doing this, he has one glaring omission in, this, in the chapter we're looking at today where he fails to do that. He doesn't explain what Rabboni is. <laughs> he just says that uh, Bartimaeus cries out Rabboni uh, and uh, doesn't spell out the difference between Rabboni and Rabbi and what Rabboni is. So one, uh, one instance there where Mark drops the ball in the explanations. As he was saying, Abba, Father. Okay. Abba means father. This is Mark's explanation of what the Abba is about. Pater. All things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. So, when he says this blind man's name was Bartimaeus, what does that mean? Son of Timaeus. All right? And generally speaking, you wouldn't say, you wouldn't pronounce that out loud in introducing yourself to anybody. You wouldn't say, hello, how are you? I'm Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. Because that would be redundant. You just said that, if in fact you're speaking Aramaic to somebody that speaks Aramaic. He's giving an explanation here for those that, uh, that may not know what uh, the Aramaic and what Bartimaeus signifies. There are various traditions with respect to Bartimaeus. Why is he mentioned here by name? You wonder how many people that Mark mentions by name in his gospel account for those that get healed or those that Jesus ministers to? Very few. Jairus and here. The only two. Miracles where Jesus performs a miracle in the name of the person associated there is mentioned by Mark. Mark does not commonly mention names like this, but he does in this episode. And the uh, reason behind that typically is the uh, understanding that, that Bartimaeus goes on to become a, a leading member of the church. Uh, you know, the first bishop of, of Jericho is usually how those kind of traditions go. And uh, that he became a leading member of the church that was established there in Jericho. We actually have church records. We have um, testimony by the, father, the church fathers that there was a thriving ministry of Jericho. Started early and only destroyed when the Muslims came through in the 6th century. So <laughs> how about that? All right, two more things. Let's talk about Bartimaeus and his blind buddy. Under point nine. Both of them are crying out and they're calling on the Lord in a persistent display of faith. The persistency of their pleas. Um, I commented on it earlier. They started yelling before he even reached town. They started yelling when the advance party told them that Jesus is on his way in. That's when they started yelling. And they persistently kept yelling. The discouragement only encouraged them. The discouragement being the external discouragements of others saying, will you shut up? Will you quit yelling? He's not even here yet. Or stop yelling. He doesn't have time for you. All right. Um, we we kind of got the idea that he's, he's actually making a very rapid passage through the town. That he's arriving, he's in town, and he's leaving in the same day, in the same, maybe just stopping for whatever supplies and water or whatever, but not staying any length of time and trying to, you know, and I understand that when you've got a large convoy and you're trying to make miles and you're trying to get to a, a safe stopping point. Um, they uh, evidently want to cover more ground before nightfall, getting up that dangerous road. So uh, they're persistent. So we got... Uh, Blind Bartimaeus and his begging buddy Bob. I'm just guessing. We'll find out. And uh, the persistent display of faith. Every single time, verse 31 in Matthew, verse 48 in Mark, and verse 39 in, in Luke, every single gospel record shows that they amplified their crying out when they were told to shut up. They called out all the more. Every uh, scripture record records how they they got louder. They just got louder. And I appreciate that. I think that's a pattern. If we're in prayer and we face a discouragement, that oh, well, why, you know, just give up on that. It's not going to happen. How do you react to that discouragement? You say, oh, well, okay. Give up on it? Or do you get that much louder? Do you realize, hey, wait a minute. 
<laughs> I believe it's the will of God for me to pray. I believe it's the will of God for me to seek his provision. And I believe now there's an adversary who's hostile working against that. So if, in fact, there is an adversary now hostile working against that, I think I better ramp it up. I believe I better ramp it up because the hostility has ramped up. All right, and then the conclusion under point 10. You know, the minute upon being summoned by the Lord, as soon as the Lord said, tell him to come over here. He hadn't even had a conversation with the Lord yet. He's just told the Lord wants to see you. Upon being summoned by the Lord, Bartimaeus throws aside his cloak. He casts aside his cloak. He's not looking back. He throws it aside. This is, the, this is literally fulfilling what the command tells us when it talks about, have you left everything to follow Jesus? I mean, he literally did that. He stood up and he threw aside his cloak. You know, if there's other beggars there, they, they can have it. Or whoever finds it can have it. Or whoever's sitting there, whoever's knocking it, maybe these two aren't the only two beggars. Maybe there's ten beggars. Who knows? But these two are the ones that are getting up and following after Jesus. And he knows he's not coming back. And so he just throws aside his cloak. I think it's a wonderful testimony of faith. Upon being summoned by the Lord, Bartimaeus threw aside his cloak. Knowing the miracle was on its way. Knowing that he was on his way. He calls him the son of David. This is the road to Jerusalem. Where else is David going? He's already had the full report. He's coming in the eastern gate. He's going out the western gate. Where else is he going? And if he really is a student of scriptures that I suspect he is, then he's got a framework to understand the 69 weeks of Daniel. He knows that next Monday is the end of week 69. So when you see this, we see the follow-up. We see that he becomes a disciple from this point forward. There's no looking back. He doesn't need that cloak. And if, in fact, he can see again, then he'll just get another cloak. Or he'll start working. Or he'll have income. Or he'll be with the Lord and it won't matter. <laughs> right? His former manner of life is done. I suspect, you know, I suspect that blind, a blind beggar, any blind person, is going to have um, a very um, particular cloak. It's going to be it's going to be tailored. It's going to be situated. It's going to have precise um, pockets and the exact thing stored in the exact same pockets and the exact same. He's going to have he's going to have his his money hidden away where he can get to it, but other people can't see it. He's going to be. Have you ever known blind people? Have you known how they function, how they operate, and the routines they follow? And so, I mean, if if this is in fact specifically tailored as a blind person's cloak, then that's yet another reason. To just cast it aside. Won't be needing that anymore. You ever think about that? I think it's a, it's a wonderful testimony. He's not looking back. He's not looking anywhere except to the Lord. And then he's going to get his eyes restored. And then he's going to keep looking at the Lord. And I love this. He becomes a disciple. He follows him from that day forward. And we don't have him by name in any f additional accounts. But the text does say that he follows him from that point forward. And uh, that means to Jerusalem. That means to the arrest, to the trial, to the cross. At least to the point where, you know, at Gethsemane, we understand they all fled. But the, uh, he becomes a follower from this point moving forward. Knowing the miracle was on its way. Do we pray with thankfulness ahead of time? We should. Because we, we maybe we haven't seen the literal answer unfold in time, but we know it's been prepared since before the foundation of the world. So why don't we start giving thanks now? Okay, we should, because we know the answer's coming. And if it's not the specific answer, it's something better than what we're mistakenly asking for. Because it may be that with finite understanding, we're asking for the wrong thing, or we're not asking for enough, or we're asking for too much, or whatever. The Father's going to give what we need, what his glory calls for, and not necessarily what in our selfishness we think uh, his plan ought to be. That becomes a blessing, too. All right, we have reached the top of the hour. We'd hate to go long on our first session. Thank you, Father, for your truth. Thank you for blind Bartimaeus. And what a testimony. I pray that each one of us would have his faith, his persistence, his confidence, 
And Father, what a testimony. We all have our areas of blindness, so we all can make application. Uh, Father, clear aside the thing, our blind spots. Clear aside our hang-ups. Remove every obstacle that's going to keep us from full service to you. Again, we give you the praise and glory. We've had two prayer meetings already in a Bible class. We've got another prayer meeting in a Bible class coming up tonight. Had a training session with LaRosa. Father, it's a good day one. And, uh, and I thank you for that. I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.